morning. As you can see from the slide that the text this morning is Acts chapter 18, and the title is Planting and Watering Churches. Now, this title is most faithful to the text. However, given our current situation, this title is least practical, at least it seems. For how can we plant churches during the pandemic? Acts 18 is not about planting online churches, even if there's such a thing. There's a difference between a church meeting online like we do now, and an online church, we does not have physical existence at all. They don't meet at all. So it doesn't seem to make sense to talk about planting churches at this time. However, scripture, including Acts 18, is always practical. It is a matter of how we apply it. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul said, I planted Apollos watered, and God was causing the growth. He was talking about planting the church at Corinth. He planted the church at Corinth. Apollos watered it, and it was God who caused the growth. So there's a human aspect, planting and watering, and God causing the growth. Now, Acts 18 is about Paul planting the church at Corinth, and Apollos watering the church at Corinth, and God causing the growth. So what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.6 is a perfect summary of what we are looking at in Acts 18. So therefore, planting and watering churches uh, is the perfect title for this someone. As we shall see, Acts 18 has much to speak to us in our current situation. But how? Movies are categorized in terms of genres. Here, there's a list of genres, seven. Not all, there are more than this. I just listed seven most popular ones. And a movie can have more than one genre. For example, uh, comedy, romance, or romance, comedy, drama. Now, if the Book of Acts is made into a movie, what will be the genres? Action? Well, the book of Acts, whether we look at Acts of the Apostle, Acts of the Holy Spirit, Acts of Jesus, is a book of action. But of course, not the kind of action that we normally watch in movies. It's a book of action. Horror? Well, there is horror in the Acts. Look at the martyrdom of Stephen. He was stoned to death. If the movie depict that, Faithfully uncensored, it will be horror. But as a whole, the book is not horror. Comedy? Well, next Sunday, we will be looking at a very humorous situation. So there is comedy. But as a whole, X is not comedy. Romance? Oh, this is a hard one. Is there a romance in the book of X? Well, very soon we will look at a couple, Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And you see them functioning as one. They are so united as one, so harmoniously functioning as one. To me, that is romantic. But to most women, I don't think they consider that romantic. But the fact that they could function as one so harmoniously, there must be romance, right? Implied. But as a whole, the book is not romance. Mystery? Well, if you take God out of the picture, the book is mystery. Because, you know, how could the 120 speak in languages never learn? And in fact, when Jesus Christ commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, or Judea, and to the ends of the earth, well, that is a mystery. How are they going to accomplish that? And as we see, as we read through the book of Acts, how they accomplished their command, we can see that it is a thriller. But this morning, I like to focus on the genre of drama. Because you know, action heroes, thriller heroes, mystery heroes may not be people who really know how to act because it is not about developing the character. Whereas in a drama, people must know how to act. We, we get to understand the characters better. Action movies does not need that. 
or thriller movie. So in Acts chapter 18, we have three main characters, Paul, of course, and Apollos, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They are actually two, but they have become one. Their function is one, so three characters. So we are going to look at what they are like and their ministry and see how God can speak to us. So now we are going to look at Acts 18, verses 1 to 28. And uh, Wigate will read for us. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 28. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was one, he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook up his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At St. Crie, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he was and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had true grace believe, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, 
showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Well, we will begin with Paul and his ministry. After leaving Athens, he came to Corinth and he met up with Aquila and his wife Priscilla because they were of the same trade. So Paul began to make plans to earn a living. Now, apparently, the mother church that sent him out with Barnabas was not giving him support, at least enough support, to be preaching the gospel full time. So he had to make a living through making tents. Based on 1 Corinthians, especially the chapter that was read to us by Atali, he not only made tents before planting the church, even after having planted the church at Corinth, he refused to accept support from the church that he had planted. Now, he did receive love gifts from churches he planted before and left. For example, we read that when Timothy and Silas came down from Macedonia, he devoted full time to preaching, meaning that he received aid from the churches in Macedonia, especially Philippi. In fact, the book of Philippians is a thank you note he wrote to the Philippian church for the gifts he had given him. A long thank you note. And actually, he, a few years after planting the church at Corinth, he wrote the epistle of Romans to the church at Rome. He didn't found the church. There was a church there, thriving church, and tell them that he wanted to go to Spain because he wanted to plant churches in places where Christ is not known. He doesn't want to build another person's foundation. He was not like Apollos. Apollos built on Paul's foundation, water the church at Corinth. Paul, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he will always go to new places. And he wanted the church at Rome to help him, to support him in his mission to Spain. You see, he's not against receiving financial support for his ministry, but not from the church has just planted and he was still there. Now, this is unique to Paul. First Corinthians 9 that was read to us explained why. He said, as an apostle, as the church had planted them, he had the right to receive financial support from them. He gave a long explanation why he had the right. But he said he had not exercised the right so as not to hinder the progress of the gospel. Now, why would accepting financial support from the church at London hinder the progress of the gospel? Now, we must remember he was apostle to the Gentiles. He goes to one place, plant a church, he stay in uh, Corinth for one and a half years, later on we shall see in Ephesus for two years, and he moved on to plant churches elsewhere. So he's always in a situation where Christ is not known. So if he were to accept financial support from the church he's planted while he's still there, he will give the impression that he came to plant churches for financial gains, kind of make a living through planting churches. He did not want that because that will give the wrong impression. And one commentator even goes so far to say, that there will be Gentiles who would not want to accept Christ because they may think that Paul's preaching comes with uh, strings attached, that if they accept the gospel through Paul, he, they will be obligated to support him financially. So therefore, he refused financial support even from the church he has planted. While he's still there, after he left, he freely accepted love gifts. Now, this is unique to Paul. Generally today, there is no such problem that the person who plant the church and receive financial support from the church. That is God's way, as laid out in the Old Testament. And Paul explained, that is God's way. But Paul was in a unique situation. So we cannot apply this today. 
except in very unique situations like Paul. But what we can apply is this. He placed the progress of the gospel above everything, not even his own livelihood. He placed the progress of the gospel above everything, not even his own livelihood. He cared about the progress of the gospel through him, through his ministry. And we read Philippians chapter 4. As I said, it's a thank you note to the Philippians. And when he actually began to thank him, thank the church, he said he actually learned to be content in whatever circumstance. He said, I, I know what it is to be in need, what it is to have plenty. In every circumstance, I've learned to be content. He demonstrated the power of the cross, the power of the gospel in his life for a person to be able to be content in whatever circumstances, in need or in plenty, pandemic or no pandemic, to be content. In other words, he also demonstrated the progress of the gospel in his own life, demonstrated the power of the gospel. At the least for us, during this very difficult time is to demonstrate the progress of the gospel in our own life. The power of the cross of Christ to demonstrate to the world what Christians are made of, what it means to believe in Jesus, the progress of the gospel in our own life and that will overflow the progress of the gospel through our life in some kind of ministry. That is what is relevant to us. We also read, he first went to the synagogue and preached. After a while, they rejected him, began to preach to the Gentiles. And Christ, in a vision, spoke to him, saying, I will protect you. No one will attack you to harm you. Because why? I have many in this city who are my people. Who are these people that Christ is talking about? I have many in this city who want be my people. Therefore, go on preaching. No matter what circumstances you face, go on preaching. Who are these people? Well, obviously it refers to people who are going to be saved in Corinth. Even Howard Marshall. Now he, he's an Armenian. Even he, an Armenian, recognizes that that text can only mean people who are going to be saved. People who are going to be to respond to the preaching of Paul. Therefore, go on preaching. Of course, as an Armenian, he will say, because of God's foreknowledge, not because God has chosen these people. The text is talking about the elect. Whether Armenian or Calvinist, it doesn't matter. The important thing is this. God, Christ assured Paul, there are many people there who are his elect, who will be saved when you preach the gospel to them. And that will encourage him. You see, Paul moves from place to place to new places. Sometimes he's wondering, ah, will there be people there who look at, look at their culture, look at their idols, look at their beliefs, will they believe? And here Paul says in Corinth, there are many who are going to believe. Look at the kind of encouragement. Can we say the same that today, when we go and plant a church, there will be people who are saved. You see, in the in Romans chapter 11, which will be written a few years after Paul planted the church at Corinth, he said, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, all Israel will be saved. That will happen at the second coming of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, when the fullness of the Gentiles, when all the Gentiles are supposed to be saved, when all the elect of God are saved, then Christ will come. Israel as a nation will turn to God. And that means 
as long as we see that Israel as a nation has not turned to Jesus Christ. They have not until now. And that means Christ has not come back. There will be Gentiles who will be safe. That means as long as Christ is not back, there are people up there who will be safe when we preach the gospel to them. And this pandemic does make us feel as though Christ is coming back soon, doesn't it? Many Christians feel that way. And some Christians even think that this pandemic is a sign of the second coming of Christ. Now, whether it is a sign of the second coming of Christ, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. Only a true prophet of God can tell that, can confirm that to us. But one thing I know, Ecclesiastes very clearly teaches that for God so works that people should fear him. Now, this is in Ecclesiastes 3. The context is this. There's a time for this and there's a time for that. There's a time for peace. There's a time for war. And now it is a time for war. War against the virus. And there are many people dying as in war. There's a time for this. God has ordained times like this. A time for war where people die. Why? God so works that men or people should see him. God allows difficult times to turn people to him. You see, when times are good, when we are prosperous, we don't feel the need of God. Look at the world before the pandemic. People come to the point where they publicly, blatantly mock God. There's no fear of God because they, they, they believe they are in control. But look at what happened now. Are we in control? Can we trust in governments to protect us? Can we trust in science and technology to ensure that we will be all right? There's nothing we can trust. And many people will be open to the gospel. This is the window when people would be open to spiritual things, to the things of God, to the gospel. Much, much more than before and after the pandemic. Whether this is a sign of the second coming or not is not crucial. This time can be used by God to prepare hearts for a harvest of the Gentiles. Will this bring in the fullness of the Gentiles? Let's wait and see. Now, the timing of this pandemic is very important. I, I'm amazed at the timing of this pandemic. Imagine if this pandemic came just 10 years or maybe even five years ago before Zoom was so freely available. Think about it. We couldn't be meeting like this. God in his mercy waited for this technology to be available before the pandemic hits. I'm a part of a mission organization that focuses on evangelism. My colleagues have been evangelizing campus students. And when the pandemic hit, they went out of business. But they had been doing with the digital uh, ministry here and there. But when the pandemic hit, they, they really had nothing to do. So they creatively came up with how to use the internet and Zoom to do evangelism and discipleship. They even came up with what they call digital mission trip. And this is the main strategy, digital mission trip. You know, mission trip, we, we have a team of people go to a place, do mission trip, preach the gospel and have that integrated church. Well, they are doing that through the internet and they discover they are reaching more people and more people are responding to the gospel than ever before. 
And of course, their mission is not completed until they integrate these people who come to know Jesus into a local church, like you would do in a physical mission trip. But one thing that we take note is this. These people who come to know Jesus Christ through this mission trip, they are scattered all over, in Malaysia and even outside of Malaysia. Meantime, we may ask them to join some church service somewhere, and they may join a church service that is uh, in America or in Singapore or elsewhere. But when the pandemic is over, it will be time for them to be gathered in physical local churches. You see, this is pre-church planting. These people can be gathered. If enough people are in a certain location, a new church can be planted from these people who come to know Christ to this digital mission trip. So this is an example to help us see the timing of this pandemic from God's perspective. You see, we saw how Paul preached from one place to another place, another place, so freely he traveled from one place to another place. We thought that was normal. No, it's not. Historians, especially of church history, have recognized that the first century was the perfect timing for the birth of the Christian faith. You see, if you read the prophecy of Isaiah, we, we will get the impression that Christ would come during Persian time. You know, after the exile, they came back, and then, you know, the Messiah will come. But God did not send his son during Persian time. He waited for the Greeks to take over and the Romans to take over before he sent his son. Why? You see, the Greeks through Alexander the Great unified a large part of the world into one language, the Greek language, and one culture, the Greek culture. And the Romans, famous for building roads. We have the saying, all roads lead to Rome. And through Pax Romana, the Romans were able to suppress people and have a period of peace. So during the time of Paul, you have a big area, the Greek Roman world, where there's one language, one culture, united through a system of roads, and it was peaceful. It was never like that before or after the Roman Empire. That was the perfect timing for the coming of Jesus Christ and the birth of the gospel for Paul to travel so freely. There are three times in the history of mankind where the world or large part of the world was united with one language. The first time was up to the time of the Tower of Babel. The people use the common language and culture to defy God, and God therefore confused the language. They were divided into different languages and cultures. The second time was during the Greek Roman time, the time of Paul. So much of the world was united into one language and one culture. So Paul could travel freely and do not have to learn a foreign language. Look at missionaries today. They go to mission, to be missionary in some countries, they learn a foreign language, foreign culture, go to school. Paul didn't have to do that at all. It was so easy. Uh, when was or is the third time where the world was united in one language and culture? Modernity. Now, the English language and the culture of modernity. Today, you can travel to any part of the world, a modern city. You can easily feel yourself comfortable there because they are so alike. Common culture. common language. Now, on top of that, the internet has further united the world, the equivalent of the roads that Rome built that enabled Paul to travel freely. Now, when you think of how God, you know, carry out his mission, how he uses government and all power, how he uses the things of this world to facilitate the progress of the gospel, 
Now we look back at the timing of the pandemic and the availability of Zoom. Think about that. What is God saying to us? And Paul has given us the example that nothing, not even our livelihood, to hinder the progress of the gospel in our lives or through our life, through our ministry. Nothing, nothing to hinder the progress of the gospel in our life or through our life, through our ministry. And uh, sometime after God gave him the mission, vision and uh, preaching the gospel. So the Jews rose up against him during the time of the pro-council, Galio. And uh, look at what happened. There's a little bit of humor there, actually. He refused to judge the case because he see no crime. What does that mean? The gospel, the progress of the gospel will always be just. It will not be in any way unjust. It will not violate any law of any country. If the laws of that country are just according to human standard, I'm not talking about laws that are just according to God's standard. I'm talking about laws that are just according to human standard, human conscience. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel can be illegal only in places where the laws are not just, even according to human standard. Therefore, we can have the assurance that the gospel can progress. No matter where. You see, when the laws are unjust, the apostles say we rather obey God than men. Therefore, no government, no laws in any country can stop the progress of the gospel. Putting all together, look at this window of opportunity God has given us during this pandemic. Now we look at Apollos and his ministry. After one and a half years, Paul left. Corinth to move on. He took with him Aquila and Priscilla and went to Ephesus. Corinth is in Greece. Ephesus is in Turkey today. He was there for a while. He went to the synagogue and reasoned with them and they liked what he was saying and they asked him to stay. He said no because he was on an errand. He had to be there in Jerusalem for the Passover. So he said, I'll come back if God wills. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla were left there. They probably have a branch. They, they are 10 makers. You know, they probably have a, uh, the headquarters in, in Rome, the branch in uh, Corinth, and the branch in Ephesus. So they stayed behind in Ephesus. And uh, during this time, Apollos from Alexandria showed up and he preached in the synagogue. Now we are told that he was a man competent. The NSV said, mighty in the scriptures. He will be what we call today an Old Testament scholar. And he was instructed in the way of the Lord, that means the gospel. He was familiar with the life and teaching of Christ. And he was able to show how from the Old Testament, Jesus was the Christ. And that is not easy. And not every Old Testament scholar today can do that comfortably. And he could do that. And we are told that he presented Christ accurately. Nothing that he said was inaccurate. But his knowledge of the gospel was accurate, but incomplete. So Aquila, Priscilla, and by now we have Priscilla and Aquila, you see, they are one. So their name can change with Aquila, Priscilla, or Priscilla, Aquila. And that, that's romantic to me. Took him aside, not confronted him publicly, took him aside, took him home for dinner perhaps, and then instructed him more accurately. And once he was instructed more accurately to become a great preacher of God, 
and they were so excited about him that when he wanted to go to Achaia, he ended up in Corinth. They endorsed him, sent letters, asking them to receive him. And then he was. In Corinth, we were told, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He helped the Christian there. The Christian who were converted to Paul, the church that was brought up by Paul, because, because he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Of course, he preached in the church to strengthen them. But what is highlighted here is he helped the Christians through refuting the Jews in public. He's what today we call an apologist. He was able to demonstrate publicly, even in the presence of Christians and non-Christians, who Jesus is. Now, this is crucial for us, especially during this time. The Jews will help when they see that the teaching that Christ was Jesus, that he fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament, could stand up to scrutiny publicly. And this is important for us. You see, as I mentioned previously in a sermon on the Acts 2, Peter's sermon, that the Christian faith, the foundation of the Christian faith, the foundation of the church is not based on human teaching. It's based on historical facts. The death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the dissension of the Holy Spirit. When we go through difficult times, our emotions are up and down. Our faith must be anchored on credible facts that we know are facts. Otherwise, we will have no anchor. And the important facts are so beautifully laid out by Peter. And I mentioned in that sermon, Peter, when he preached, he was demonstrating this through quoting Old Testament scripture and how they were fulfilled concerning Christ's death and resurrection, Christ's ascension, and the descension of the Holy Spirit. He was saying, God had long ago announced what he was going to do to bring salvation to the world. He had announced hundreds of years ago that the Messiah, the Christ, will come and die and be resurrected. And he will be ascended. And after his ascension, the Holy Spirit will come. See, all these things have been announced ahead of time so that we can be looking out for them. And when these things are fulfilled, they came in style. They came in miracles. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus can still be confirmed to be historical fact today if we care to do the investigation. The, decision of the, Holy, the ascension of Christ. They saw Christ go up and the descension of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit came, the 120 spoke in languages they never learned. It was a miracle. It was unmistakable. This is the work of God. You see, God does not want his people to be gullible. God wants us to anchor our faith on what he will do historically. So he announced ahead of time so that we can look out for it. And when it happened, it came in style with miracles. You cannot miss it. So therefore, during this time of pandemic, for the sake of the progress of the gospel within our lives, we need to revisit what is our faith anchored upon. But I was very intrigued by what was missing in the understanding of Paulus. He was an Old Testament scholar, competent, mighty in the Old Testament. And because I happen to be in the same field, Old Testament, so, so, so I'm concerned. What did he miss? Am I missing the same thing? 
So, so what could it be? And uh, Luke doesn't tell us what was missing. I, I believe there is a reason. You see, Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't tell us what that is. He says that thorn in the flesh is something very painful, whether physically, emotionally, or both, that, to, to keep him humble, to keep him trusting in God. And he doesn't tell us what. And that's the reason why he doesn't tell us what it is. Because if he tells us exactly what it is, we will only limit to that thing. He doesn't tell us what it is so that we know anything. It could be anything in our lives that is painful, whether physically or emotionally or both, that will keep us humble, that will keep us trusting in God. That is the tone in the flesh that God has put in our lives to keep us trusting him. So it is a good thing that he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. Otherwise, you'll say only that thing is the tone in the flesh. In the same way, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what was missing. In this way, it warns us, especially those of us who think we know the scriptures well enough, am I missing something? So that we will be careful to seek scriptures. You see, we know that uh, he understood the life and teaching of Christ accurately. But he only knew the baptism of John. Therefore, he, he uh, did not have apostolic teaching. So to find out what it could be that is missing in his understanding of the gospel, we look in terms of, well, it is about the gospel. And uh, he understood it accurately, but not completely. So nothing that he said was not accurate. So the problem is what he did not say. And it's probably something that is special about Paul, unique to Paul. Well, I thought hard, I found something that may or may not be exactly his case, but it is something that could be our case. Though we know the scriptures well, we miss this something. We know the scripture accurately. Nothing that we are aware of is not accurate, inaccurate, but Incomplete is something that we have not understood. What could that be? I find a clue when it says Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. But note what was Paul's preaching in the synagogue? We are told that he reasoned with the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy, Jesus was the Christ. But it does not say that Christmas believed that Jesus was the Christ. Though that was the preaching of Paul, Jesus was the Christ. But it doesn't say that Christmas believed that Jesus was the Christ. And that is important. We must believe that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Any obviously believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Is resurrected grousing. He believed all those things. He knew all those things. But missing something. The text says, Christmas believed in the Lord, not believe that Jesus was the Christ. It doesn't say be Jesus, uh, Christmas believed that Christ died on the cross for our sin. He was resurrected for our justification. Yes, we believe all these things. We have to believe all these things. We have to believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus died for our sins. We have to believe that Jesus raised for our justification. All these are accurate. All these are necessary, but not enough. Believe in the Lord. Believe in Jesus. There is a difference between the object of faith, who we put our trust in, and the contents of faith. What we believe about what God has said, what God has done. Now, not and the Apostles' Creed. Now, Sarah didn't know I'm going to talk about this. Look at the Apostles' Creed. It can be summarized in the three sections. The first section, I believe in God the Father. And talk about what we believe about God. And then I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. And then talk about what we believe about Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then follows what we believe about the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a difference between believing in God and believing what about God, what God has done, what God has said. There's a world of difference. Now, election may be coming our way. 
say in your constituency that uh, there is a new candidate. And he was uh, Adun, assemblyman somewhere. And he, he, he always keep his promises, you know. Whatever he promised the constitution, he will do it. He's known for that. He keeps his word. You can believe about what he says. So he came to your constitution and said, I see that your roads are not properly taken off, your drains are not properly taken off, and of all these problems in, in your constituency, say, if you want me in, I will take care of all these problems, will be taken care of. And you look at his track like God, you know you can, you, can, you can believe his words. You can believe what he says. And you look at what he does, you can believe in what he does. So you want him to be your MP. But you don't really believe in him as a person. Looking at him as a person, in spite of how he will keep his words and so on, he will do what he says. You won't want to let your daughter or your sister marry him. You don't trust in him. And when he sees a problem in your constituency, he tries to give you give your advice. You all should do this and not do this. You know what the, you will say to him? We will turn you in to take care of our problems, not to tell us what to do. You know, many, many Christians are having the same attitude. I believe in the gospel. I believe Christ died on the cross of my sin. I believe in the resurrection of Christ because I want to go to heaven, not for you, God, to tell me what to do. You see the difference in believing in God, what God has said, what God has done, versus believing in God himself. When we believe in God himself, we believe in everything he says, his commandments, his promises. During good times, we may not feel the difference. But during bad times, the difference will be very glaring. If we have only believed in the gospel, and we should, we have only believed in Christ died for my sins. He was raised for my justification, and we should believe in this. We don't believe in him as a person. In difficult times, we will find it very hard to face the circumstances because we only believe in the gospel. Believe in Christ died from my sin. Believe he raised from the dead. From the dead. But I have not learned to believe in him, that he is trustworthy. I can count on him. I can trust in him. He says, six first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I can put my trust in him. If we have not learned to believe in Jesus, to believe in God, this is the perfect time because we are left with no choice. In good times, we don't have to believe in Jesus. We think we can take care of ourselves. In times like this, we realize we have nowhere to turn except to Jesus. And we may realize for the first time, I have not really believed in him. Now we must, we must seek the progress of the gospel in our heart, in our life. Progress from believing in the gospel to believing in Jesus. I hope if we don't understand anything else I've said this morning, we will not miss this message. We need to believe in Jesus, not just in what he has said and what he has done for us. Otherwise, we are just like believing about the politician, what he has said and what he has done. We believe that, but we don't believe in him. We don't trust in him. It is only when we learn to trust in God that we can face tomorrow, whatever it may be. May the gospel progress in our heart during this time, that it will overflow so that the gospel will progress through our life, 
how can we take advantage of this window during this time to contribute to the progress of the gospel. Look at Priscilla and Aquila, how they supported Paul financially, not directly, they gave Paul a job. But today the equivalent will be support the work of God financially in one way or another. We are familiar with this, so there's really no need to dwell on this. But look at their ministry to Apollos. There might be a small contribution to enable Apollos to have the accurate understanding and that launch the ministry of Apollos become a mighty preacher. We must never, never underestimate the small things we do. It reminds me of Ed Kimball. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but it's so beautiful, I like to tell it. Ed Kimball was an ordinary Sunday school teacher, not a highly educated one. He was teaching a group of teenagers. So one day, a 17-year-old boy named Dwight joined his class. And this boy joined his class not because he, he was interested in religion at all. He was not. His soul was dark. He didn't even believe in the soul. He, he was there because his uncle required him to attend church and Sunday school in order to give him a job in the shoe shop that he owned. That was a condition that uncle gave. So, so he just attended. And he had problems even turning to the Bible. And then one day, Ed Kimball visited him at his place of work, the shoe shop. And there he led this boy to Christ. And this boy became what is known throughout the world as D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. Just an ordinary Sunday school teacher. The story doesn't end there. In 1943, Mordecaham preached the gospel in Charlotte. I think that's when Pastor Micah is. A young man there was listening and he accepted Jesus. The name of this young man was Billy Graham. There are different versions in the internet. I don't know which is correct, but there are slight differences that trace the ministry of Mordecaham to the ministry of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody to F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer to Wilbur Chapman, Wilbur Chapman to Billy Sunday, Billy Sunday to Mordecaham and Billy Graham. Just an ordinary Sunday school teacher. You never know. The life he touched in the name of Christ, what that life will become in the long run. How can we give him, get involved as we learn to let the gospel progress in our life to overflow to, through our life? There is a wonderful book called Becoming a Contagious Christian by Bill Hybels and Mark Witterberg. Bill Hybels was the founder of that, at one point, the largest church in the world, Willow Creek Church. Now, this church is known throughout the world for its outstanding outreach to unchurched people. And in this book, they share, based on scripture and the experience, there are actually six approaches to share Christ. And these six approaches can be applied even during the pandemic, especially through Zoom. The first approach they call the direct approach. The approach that Peter used when he preached on the day of Pentecost. In other words, you find an audience, whether a group or individuals. And you may ask, you know, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? Or do you know Christ? And you start sharing the gospel, the direct approach. And usually this is considered the standard approach of sharing Christ. And uh, uh, many Christians are frightened by this approach and they don't share Christ at all. The second approach is called the intellectual approach. The approach Paul used in Acts 17 that we heard last Sunday. He saw an occasion. There was this altar to an unknown God 
And he starts talking about this and reason himself to the gospel. That means you look for an opportunity, an occasion, or you create an, an occasion opportunity where you can talk about something that's of interest to the person. And then from there, reason to the gospel. And this is the approach of Mark Middleburg. The first approach is the approach of Bill Hybers. And Mark Middleburg actually said he thought that was the only approach, the direct approach. And he actually written off sharing the gospel. But he discovered this second method. And, and he is now on passion sharing the gospel and training other people to do so. The third approach is called a testimonial approach. The approach of the blind man in John 9. Jesus healed him and he testified to Jesus what Christ has done for him. As Christians, we, we have experienced what Christ has done for us. We have a story to tell. We can share how Christ has touched us, changed us. In the process, we bring out the gospel. So we can use one of the three approaches. These are the evangelistic approaches. There are three other approaches I will call pre-evangelistic. They prepare sharing the gospel. They call Matthew's approach the interpersonal approach. You see, Matthew, after he became a disciple of Christ, he called his tax collector friends for a banquet to expose them to Christ. So this approach is about building interpersonal relationship with a lot of people. Some of us, some of us are very good at that. And we, we build up a relationship with them. We have a Christian testimony in our lives. So, so much so that it comes to a point where we feel comfortable to, for example, organize a dinner, or in this case, organize a Zoom meeting and invite non-Christian friends to come and hear someone share the gospel, whether by the direct approach or the intellectual approach or the testimony approach. Another approach they call the invitation approach, the approach of the Samaritan woman. After she had encountered Christ, she went out and called her countrymen. You see, Jews have no relationship with the Samaritans, but now she is a fellow Samaritan. So she invited them to come. They came and Jesus managed to talk to them. So this is a smaller version of the interpersonal approach. Don't have the big interpersonal relationship. Just people we know, our friends and family. If we are not able to share at all, even a testimony, we can invite them during normal time, sit to a dinner and find someone to share the gospel with them. This is especially useful for our own friends and our relatives, our parents, usually very hard. Or through a Zoom meeting. Or say to one of our seminars, mental health seminars, invite them to come. And finally, the service approach of Tabitha in X9, always known for doing good and helping the poor to service to them. Blessed in the name of Jesus that people can see Christian love them because Christ loved them, prepare the ground for the gospel to be preached. So we can mix the approaches, the pre-evangelistic and then the evangelistic and surely at least one of the six we can do. Remember, this is a golden window. This pandemic is a golden window, just like the first century was a golden window. Before and after, it was more difficult to preach the gospel to the nations. And this is a golden window, this pandemic. Before and after, it will be difficult, more difficult. It's a golden window. Do we seek to let the gospel first progress in our own life? Get to know God more. To learn to believe in Him, not just in the gospel message. And let it overflow so that the gospel can progress through our lives to some form of ministry, to one of the six approaches. You see, whether we like it or not, this pandemic is causing us a lot, a lot, a lot of painful moments. Whether we like it or not, it's a difficult time. 
even you're not concerned about ourselves, they are concerned about our siblings, our relatives, our friends. At this time, everyone, especially non-Christian, need to ask themselves, am I ready to meet my maker? God is doing something. If you let this opportunity pass, this golden window pass, that means we will go through this pandemic, all the heartaches, all the inconveniences, all the unpleasant experiences, we will go through them all for nothing. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can call you our Father. As our Father, we know you love us. And we thank you that you have assured us you are in control. You know what you are doing. Teach us to know how to believe in you more and more, especially during this time that the gospel might progress in our lives so that it will better progress through our lives. Thank you for your word. Continue to speak to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.